2. Created by the cable television industry. Herbert Romerstein's new book, The Venona Secrets, examines Soviet espionage against the U.S. during World War II. Next, as part of our weekly look at history books, Mr. Romerstein talks about his book and the motivations behind the Americans who served as Soviet spies during that period. His remarks were hosted by the Institute for World Politics in Washington, D.C., and last about 50 minutes. My name is John Lenchowski, and I'm director of the Institute of World Politics. And for those of you who are new to the Institute, we are a graduate school of statecraft, of national security affairs, and of moral leadership. Uh, we are only 10 years old. This year is our 10th anniversary. And we're in the business of teaching people a professional curriculum of study on the matters, on, on the different instruments of statecraft in a context of the study of many of those liberal arts which are oftentimes not well enough taught in the major academic institutions to prepare people for professional study in, in this field. We are specializing in the study of a number of different fields that have been neglected in the international affairs curriculum, including such subjects as uh, intelligence, propaganda, political warfare, public diplomacy, cultural diplomacy, uh, and other such subjects which are oftentimes, in spite of the fact that large budgets may be spent on them, uh, are not well studied before people go into professional work in these fields. Um, uh, one reason why we exist and, and have managed to penetrate this market is that we offer uh, courses that are taught by a faculty of scholar practitioners uh, who have spent many years in the field. And one of those is our uh, featured speaker tonight, uh, Herb Romerstein, who teaches for us on the subject of propaganda, uh, which is one of those fields which not too many people study uh, in, in higher education today, and which is a field for which the United States doesn't really have all that systematic a, uh, a policy uh, to defend against. In any event, <clears throat> Herb is, uh, is one of those rare scholar practitioners who has been a specialist on the subject of, of propaganda, active measures, deception, particularly with regard to the Soviet Union. He's had a very distinguished career uh, both uh, as a, a committee staffer on several of the major committees in the Congress for many years, including uh, in the 1950s in the House Un-American Activities Committee, uh, later on the, on the House Intelligence Committee. And then in the 1980s, he joined the, uh, the staff of the U.S. Information Agency, where he was head of the office to counter Soviet active measures and was instrumental in the interagency working group, which produced many of the most rare and now virtually unavailable, but still vital studies on the subjects of, uh, of Soviet propaganda and active measures, which is a, a KGB uh, term of art, which re refers to disinformation, forgeries, and covert political influence operations. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to uh, introduce Herb 
who will talk about his new book on the Venona secrets. Thank you, Herb. Thank you, John. But it must be a miracle of technology that John Manchowski and I can use the same microphone without moving it. <laughs> First of all, I, I would like to thank the people that set up this gathering. John Lanchowski, of course, uh, Jim, Michelle, uh, Mario, who did so much work to get this group together. Uh, the whole idea of the book was to give the next generation the information that we now have about how the Soviet Union operated its intelligence service against us when we were ostensibly allies during World War II. And it was an incredible thing. The Soviets had something that no other government at any time in history ever had. And that is a cadre of people in the other country who were loyal to the, to the Soviet Union. And because they were loyal, they were prepared to spy against their own country. That's a, an amazing concept. Usually, you can get a spy here or you get a spy there. Sometimes you get a spy for ideology. Sometimes you get them for money. But the Soviets got a large number of people on the basis of ideology. Some of these people paid dues to the Communist Party for the privilege of being spies for the Soviet Union. And they were in the most incredible places. I mean, we all know the names of Alger Hiss and the State Department or Harry Dexter White and the Treasury Department. But there were many more. There was Loughlin Curry in the White House, and amazingly, President Roosevelt's closest friend and associate, Harry Hopkins, in the White House, a man who knew everything about everything in the United States government, anything he wanted to know. And his control officer, and we talk about him in the book and, and the control officer as well, Isak Akhmerov, who was one of the most amazing men in the history of Soviet intelligence. He was here as an illegal to the Americans, the American government. He was just a man with an accent who happened to be a businessman in New York and in Baltimore with an American wife. Very nice gentleman. Everybody liked him. He was the illegal directorate for the Soviet intelligence service, at that time called NKVD. We later knew it as KGB. He was the illegal director in the United States. And he handled Harry Hopkins. He met with Alger Hiss. Uh, he met with a number of other of the key spies. And we knew about him. We only knew a name. We only knew him as Bill. When Elizabeth Bentley in 1945 told the FBI about her role in Soviet spying, and she said, my contact was a Russian who I only know as Bill. It took years for the FBI to identify that bill as Isak Akhmerov. And in the 1970s, Akhmerov, teaching at the KGB school in Moscow, boasted to his class that he ran Harry Hopkins, the most important American agent that the Soviet Union had. And sitting in that class was Oleg Gordievsky, who defected to the British and spent 10 years in KGB on behalf of the British Intelligence Service reporting what the KGB was into. And Gordievsky is a, an incredibly courageous man who was able to report to the West about what was happening. 
But the, the interesting thing in this context is he heard Akhmarov talk about Akhmarov's agent, Harry Hopkins. Uh, you look at the, the role of some of these people in very high positions. Why did they spy? They spied because their loyalty was to the Soviet Union. And it's rather amazing to read the New York Times the other day. Uh, Gus Hall, the longtime head of the American Communist Party, died at the age of 90. And a piece appears in, in the uh, New York Times of October 21st, sort of a eulogy to Gus Hall by Victor Navasky of The Nation. Navasky spent his whole writing career defending Alger Hiss, defending the Rosenbergs, arguing that these people were not Soviet spies. And now, he says, in the New York Times just a few days ago, a new cadre of Cold War historians seems intent on seizing fragments from Cold War archives, ambiguous intercepts from cables between Moscow and its American-based agency and other ephemera to prove that the American Communist Party was indeed the center of a nest of spies. Gee, I wonder why anybody would think that, looking at the documentation. And what's interesting is that the documents from Moscow, the, the communications from Moscow that were broken by, by the NSA, and so that it's possible for us to read what Moscow was telling its intelligence officers in the United States and what they were reporting back to Moscow, are hardly ambiguous. Uh, in, in the case of, uh, of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, whom Navasky spent so many years defending, there's one cable that says that Liberal, which was the code name for Julius Rosenberg, and his wife have recommended their sister-in-law, Ruth Greenglass, name spelled out, Ruth Greenglass, to be an agent. And that's not ambiguous at all. And Moscow would not have trusted a recommendation from the corner grocery store guy. They trusted a recommendation from their two trusted spies in the United States who recommended their sister-in-law to be another spy. Uh, in regard to Alger Hiss, who again, who Navasky defended for so many years, uh, the document is quite clear. Akhmarov meets with Hiss, who was not an agent of the NKVD. He was an agent of the GRU, the Soviet Military Intelligence Service. And he contacted Akhmarov to say that his handlers, his military handlers, were not treating his information with the respect he expected, and they were paying no attention to important material he had, and could the NKVD take over the transmission of some of this material back to Moscow. And he boasts to Akhmarov that when he was in Moscow after the Yalta conference, he was in the American delegation at Yalta and an advisor to President Roosevelt, he then flew with the Secretary of State to uh, Moscow and at a obviously not in the presence of any other American, the Soviet government gave him a medal for his work against the United States. And so Navasky would like to defend these people still, but it's embarrassing to him that there are people going into the archives and looking at the materials and actually understanding what these materials mean. Um, my wife and I had the work in the Moscow archives, uh, of the Communist International 
and material that was available to us just a few years ago has now been closed. But we brought back some thousands of microfilms, which they allowed us, which they made for us, in fact. But they've now closed it so others cannot have it. But we try to make these materials available to anybody who would like them. And of course, the remarkable work that was done by the U.S. intelligence people in breaking the Venona traffic, the communications from between Moscow and their agent networks in the United States through their intelligence officers. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the, that material is, is wonderful. But in addition to giving us new material, identification of agents that we had not known about before, it also confirms that Whitaker Chambers and Elizabeth Bentley, when they testified in 1948 before the House Committee on Un-American Activities, told the truth. Things that Bentley said that we could never check out over the years show up in Venona, and it's quite clear that when she talked about these things, she was truthful about them. The other uh, thing in the New York Times of a couple of days ago was an editorial eulogy to Gus Hall, the head of the Communist Party for so many years. And they said that he never wavered in his belief in communism. He didn't waver because he was getting between a million and two million dollars a year to KGB channels to run the American Communist Party. And the Times says he didn't waver because that would have offended his native Midwestern stubbornness. <laughs> He wasn't a stooge of the Soviet dictatorship because he was a Midwestern American. He was a stooge because he was anti-American, because he was a total believer in the horrible system of the Soviet Union, the gulag, the uh, aggression against their neighbors, their alliance with Adolf Hitler. All of the things that the Soviet Union did, Gus Hall liked those things because he hated America. And the Times has not gotten the message yet. Uh, thank you. The other aspect that I think we should discuss a little bit tonight is the fact that for a long time, Americans were taught that the Soviet Union was our ally in World War II, and if we had differences later, we should never forget that they're our ally. What the Venona documents teach us is that we were co-belligerents, but we were not allies. They were spying in the United States, not only against our government, but against ordinary Americans who were doing things that the Soviets were concerned about. And let me talk about one aspect of that. The Soviet intelligence service sent their agents into Jewish organizations because those groups were trying to help the Jews in the Nazi-occupied areas of Europe, were trying to get uh, opportunities to smuggle them out. We all know about Wallenberg, who used money that was sent by the War Refugee Board to pay off Nazi officials so that he could smuggle Jews out of their grasp. That's what the Russians wanted to know about. They want to know who was helping the United States and who was helping American Jewish organizations provide support for the, the people who were the victims of Nazism. Why were they, did they care about this? 
because the Soviet Union intended to and succeeded in taking control of Central and Eastern Europe. And those people, those who were saved, were people who would be supporters of democracy. And that's, that was their enemy for the future. And so the Soviet intelligence network needed to know who those people are in Eastern Europe who are helping to smuggle out Jews. Who are those people in Eastern Europe who are connected with the Americans so that they can be persecuted after the war? This is an incredible thing. And we see it now in part from the Venona materials because it identifies the people who went into spy to help the Soviet Union, not to help the United States. And the more we see of this material, and I hope we're going to be seeing a lot more of it in the future, uh, the, it, it teaches us that we have to be alert to the fact that a totalitarian regime, whether it's Nazi or communist, can never really be our allies. They are always our enemies because we believe in freedom and they don't. And my own concept of what I'm supposed to do is gather enough of the, as much of this information as I can and make it available in whatever form I can to the next generation that is going to need to know. You know, there's the, the old Santayana saying that if you don't learn from history, you're compelled to repeat it. But somebody added to that. The problem is that even those who learn from history are compelled to repeat it with them. And we're going to be repeating it if we don't have enough people that have learned what this is about. And uh, the Institute for World Politics, which, uh, whose beautiful building we're now in, has done a remarkable job of training young people in statecraft. But the statecraft that gives you the desire to learn enough about the subject so that you can make informed decisions as a government official, for example, and also the moral background that you need to make the informed decision to benefit the United States. So again, thank you, John Lanchowski, for inviting me tonight and for setting this up. And thank you for the wonderful work that your institute is doing. Thank you. Will you take some questions from the audience? Um, the Herb is, uh, is ready to take some questions, so if you've got some, please raise your hand, and then after a, after a little bit, we'll repair uh, to get some refreshments. Please. Yes. Tell us what did you find out about Owen Latimer? We did not find, either in Venona or in the Moscow archives, anything that showed that Owen Lattimore was a spy. However, we did find a document in the Moscow archives that refers to activities of Owen Lattimore in the United States, and the Soviets knew a lot about what he was doing. But we know from other sources, from his own letters, which fell into the hands of the United States Senate, that he was in constant contact with the Soviet apparatus, that he, excuse me, brought people into the United States that were recommended to him by the Soviet apparatus. And the conclusion of the Senate Subcommittee on Internal Security that he was a conscious and articulate agent of Soviet policy was exactly right. But we, we can't back it up with Venona. 
Yeah, so when you said uh, you expect to, uh, or you hope to get more information, is that more from Venona or from other sources? No, from other sources. Venona is a distinct body of material that we now have, and we're not going to get more. No. Uh, only about 10% of the material is decrypted, but the possibility of decrypting more seems not available. But what we're hoping is that as the democratic countries of Central and Eastern Europe develop, they will want to open their archives to us on, on some of the things that were done in the United States and the relationship between the uh, pro-Soviet element here and, and those communist governments in the past. Uh, you mentioned the problem of the New York Times. We went through this 30-some years ago before the founding of accuracy in media, going after the Washington Post and New York Times for inaccuracy and distortion and outright lies. I've seen some of the same radicals now teaching in college who were out there 30 years ago in the streets. Why are we facing the same problem at this point in time? <laughs> we're facing the same problem because of what you just outlined that people who grew up in the radical movement, grew up in, in an anti-American movement, are now in a position to teach others uh, and to spread the lies and disinformation that they learned themselves in the past. That's why it's so important that we have the documentation and we present it in whatever form we can so that people do know the difference between the truth and falsities and why Victor Navasky doesn't like the idea of our going into the archives and finding such material. Because, you know, the, the, the concept of knowing the truth will make you free, it is the only thing that will make you free, and we need to know the truth, and we need to counter their stories. And Bob? Do you have any insight as to, as to why this, the Russians opened their archives to you, and then also why they've closed them down? The archives were not only open to me, they were open to many, many American scholars. And while we were over there, there was a, an article in one of the hardline pro-communist newspapers that said, what traitor to Russia has opened the archives to the Americans? Well, they didn't remain very open for very long. And uh, Boris Yeltsin signed an edict to close some of those archives. However, in all fairness, we should know that a lot of material not only came out earlier, but a lot of material is still coming out because for whatever reason the Russians have, uh, they're willing to allow materials to be copied. Some of the most significant stuff, the stuff that we saw that related to espionage, they don't want copied. But the entire archive of the American Communist Party, which contains a tremendous amount of interesting information, is now in the United States on microfilm at the Library of Congress. And I, I always like to make sure that my friends have additional work. So talk to John Haynes, who has been working on that. He's standing in the back of the room trying to hide. But, uh, but in fact, that particular archive uh, is available. And an additional archive has been negotiated with uh, the Library of Congress and other uh, archives around the world for a million documents from the Communist International Archives. If they made mistakes and they let some good stuff into there, and I'm sure they have, because they don't always understand the implication of it, uh, it'll be a very valuable source for continued work. Perfect. 
Yeah. May I just, I just wanted to comment a little bit on uh, Bob Shadler's question. Uh, I happened to have been visiting Moscow in, in uh, 1992 in the fall, uh, and I ran into Vladimir Bukovsky there, the famous dissident, who uh, it was, it was, who was hap happened to be in Moscow with a bodyguard. And apparently what had happened was that the Communist Party of the Soviet Union sued uh, Boris Yeltsin for uh, ostensibly illegally um, seizing the Communist Party's property and, and, uh, and, and shutting down its activities. And, and so and they sued Yeltsin, I think, in front of the Constitutional Court or one of the high courts in the immediate post-Soviet uh, Russia. And uh, Yeltsin apparently contacted Bukovsky as one of the stoutest resistors of, of communist uh, 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 political action and asked him, what do I do to, to, to deal with this suit? And Bukovsky suggested to him that the answer was to demonstrate in front of the Russian court that the Communist Party was in fact a criminal organization, even by the standards of the Soviet Constitution, and that therefore what had to be done in order to prove this was to open up the archives and to have an almost an internal Nuremberg uh, and, and so as a result of this, there was this temporary opening of the archives. This evidence was in fact brought into the court with the help of Bukowski and others. Uh, but unfortunately, it was too embarrassing for too many people, and they, and they, and they shut the whole thing off. Uh, I think Abe Scholsky has a question back then. Abe? Senator Moynihan has, has said that if the, uh, some of this Venona material could have been uh, made public earlier on, uh, rather than just in the last uh, few years, uh, it would have helped a lot by getting a lot of this, uh, these facts out into the uh, out of the open. I was just wondering if you had any uh, any thoughts or speculations on what the impact might have been of an earlier release of uh, some of the material. I, I don't believe that it could have been released while there was still a Soviet Union. Uh, there's a legitimate argument by the American code breakers that every time you show an ability to break codes, you awaken those people who are trying to conceal information from you. So I, I can understand them not releasing it then. But of course they didn't want to release it after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, in less than a year before the, the Venona documents were actually released, uh, Les Aspen, who was then head of the uh, President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, uh, for some unknown reason, decided to call a press conference to say that J. Robert Oppenheimer was not a spy. So this is his answer to Jerry Schechter's book with Sotoplatov, in which Sotoplatov said that indeed Oppenheimer was providing them with information. And uh, in the course of that, uh, I was at the press conference asking nasty questions, and so was Jerry Schechter. And Schechter said, when are they going to release Venona? And Les Aspen, former Secretary of Defense, said, they're never going to release Venona. It's still too sensitive. And within a year, Venona was released. And we know now that it was not so sensitive at that point. And it provides some very interesting information on J. Robert Oppenheimer. 
There's not a document that says Oppenheimer came in today and gave us secret information. There's just a continuing contact between the Soviet intelligence service and J. Robert Oppenheimer. They did not maintain contacts with such people just to, uh, to pass the time of day. <clears throat> One of the documents of Venona that was not understood even at the time it was released, but we know more about it now, uh, identifies a Soviet intelligence officer named Leonid Aitengan, who had committed a number of murders. He murdered Leon Trotsky, organized the murder of Leon Trotsky, for example, and who, according to Sudapadov, had uh, come to the United States to help set up the spying in the atomic energy area. And we find uh, in a, an intercepted uh, telephone call between one of the Soviet agents, Pop Volkov, uh, and another one, in which Volkov says, we're going to bring Tom to meet with Oppenheimer. Tom was the code name for Aethengan. So there's a lot of material that still needs to be analyzed and put together. I mean, we talk about it in the book, but there's much, much more that needs to be done. Yes? Yeah, I guess uh, more. Uh, the subject of Trotsky, somebody had told me a long time ago, and I don't know, you know, on what authority, that the Communist Party organization in Hollywood had been a kind of support organization for people going down into Mexico to try to get uh, Trotsky. Did you ever get any point from that? It, it, it's a yes, but <laughs> answer. The One of the purposes that the Communist Party had in Hollywood was raising a large amount of money, some of it which was used to support Soviet intelligence activities in the United States. And Jay Peters, who, was the, uh, who ran Whitaker Chambers, was also in charge of going to Hollywood to organize getting this money. Uh, the head of the NKVD in San Francisco, who had the responsibility for Hollywood, um, was named uh, Heifetz. Uh, his mistress was a very wealthy woman, and she would set up these cocktail party soirees for people with money, for example, the Hollywood crowd, or people like J. Robert Oppenheimer, who had scientific information, to allow Heifetz's intelligence officers to mingle among these people. Heifetz shows up in Venona all the time, as does his mistress, Louise Branson Berman. So there's a, a, a great deal that needs to be looked at. There's some questions in the back. Yeah. In the immediate aftermath of the August 1991 coup, there were reportedly great fires going on in, in the uh, KGB headquarters and party headquarters in Moscow. Is there any indication that the archives that you viewed uh, had been purged or burned, or what about the, do we know, do we have any idea what they did succeed in burning? Has there been any copies of such documents found in the provinces, for example? There, there were things burned, certainly. The archive that we had the opportunity to look at was the archive of the Communist International. And that was important because when Communist Party members in the United States, for example, were recruited for espionage, their names were sent from the NKVD to the Communist International to check them out, to make sure that they never had any deviations of any kind. So there are such materials still in existence. And that's the kind of stuff that Yeltsin later closed. But they didn't understand 
what was in there. So they didn't do any burning there. And as far as I can tell, I know John Haynes uh, has been to those files more often than I have. And I don't see any indication that these things were stripped. There's just too much material in there that was good. Uh, in the case of the KGB files, they have never been opened. They will take portions of those files, uh, the SVR, which is the successor organization of KGB, takes portions that they think they want to put into the hands of specific Westerners who are then given these very sanitized materials to make a point that the Russian government wants made. Uh, however, uh, when uh, people have asked for things, they usually turn down. Now, I did ask for something, and I was not turned down. And so I am very happy that our friends in the SVR were nice to me. Um, John Haynes and Harvey Clare had found a document in the Communist International Archives in which uh, Dmitrov, the head of the Comintern, writes to, uh, to Yezhov, Stalin's secret police and intelligence chief, saying that Comrade Browder, the head of the American Communist Party, has asked that his sister be relieved of her assignment with the Soviet intelligence service. And the letter has written on it, the original copy of Comrade Browder's letter in English was sent to Comrade Yezhov. And so I asked the SVR people for Browder's letter. And it took about a year and a half. And they found it. It had not indeed been burned. And they sent me a copy of Browder's letter saying that it was very important that his sister be relieved of her assignment because as a result of the important contacts that Browder has in Washington, it would be embarrassing if it became known that his sister was working for the Soviet intelligence service. They sent me the document, so I can't complain. Yes? I have a sort of a two for one. Was the penetration of the Jewish community here sending money to relieve the Jews uh, sent to Wallenberg. For so long, the Soviets said they didn't know what happened to him after he was picked up in Budapest. And then, and the Wallenberg family being so prominent in Sweden, uh, they also ran against a blank wall. Was he actually executed because of this connection with the, with the Jewish community here and receiving money? And did they actually know that when they picked him up? And the second question was to do with Alger Hiss. Um, do you think, from your opinion, did he... Were, were people of his jar, like he and Harry Hopkins, actually in this, not for money, obviously, not necessary for ideology, but for the game? Were they playing an intellectual game with their own country? And this, were they getting a sort of a charge out of it, uh, just to see if they could uh, win on both sides? Let me answer, if I can, your second question first. I don't believe that these people were in it for the thrills. I think that they were dedicated communists, and that's how they're treated in the, uh, in the communications, in the Venona communications. These are comrades. The Soviets looked upon them as fellow communists, not as Americans. And no matter how high these people got in the government, their loyalty was to the Soviet Union. In regard to Wallenberg, I think that the answer to your question is yes, that the Soviets did know because they had penetrated not only the Jewish organizations, but the U.S. government agencies like the War Refugee Board, which was funneling that, that money raised in the Jewish community to Wallenberg and to others like him. And they certainly knew it. 
And Wallenberg was a victim because he was a humanitarian, not, not for any other reason. Yes. Sir, uh, did any other people around Churchill, particularly people like Beaverbrook or Lord Moran, knew of Hopkins' role inside the FBI White House? I, I don't believe that anybody knew of Hopkins' role in those days, neither the British nor the Americans. But we have the, the leading British expert on KGB with us today, Nigel West, and at least shake your head if you don't do anything more. Uh, am I right that the British did not know? <laughs> yeah, he says he, he thinks I'm right. I'm... <laughs> uh, yeah, there's no indication that anybody knew at all about the role of Hopkins until Gordievsky came out and told the British about it years after the war. Yes, Ken? Uh, NSA uh, released the Venona material. Is, is there, and you've been talking about things in the Russian archives. Is there still stuff in, for example, FBI files and in the American archives that would be of use at this point to, to complete the picture? Without any question, there's a lot of valuable information in American archives. The FBI has a program of releasing things under the Freedom of Information Act, and every time there's another big release of material, we learn a lot more. But the important thing is not merely what the FBI had, but to put it in the context of what the Soviets had in their archives and what Venona shows us. And when we begin putting these pieces of the puzzle together, then we can see the much larger area of the picture. So I, I would certainly encourage the FBI to keep releasing materials. Yes? Oh, before I ask my question, uh, I could add something uh, to what was just said. Uh, I found out by accident that the FBI right now is putting together a file for subsequent public uh, access on uh, this uh, Isak Akmerov, uh, this uh, very uh, intriguing spy that is, I'm sure, going to figure importantly in your book and whom you just mentioned in, uh, in your remarks. Yeah. But, uh, so that, that, that file will be available if you want to learn more about this guy. Yeah, no, that, it'll be very valuable for two reasons, and I, I agree with you that it is valuable. One is, of course, that we will know more about Akhmerov and what the FBI was able to put together on him. But I think that the file will also show that while Akhmerov was still in the United States, the FBI had no idea who he was or what he was, and they didn't even know who, that he was billed for many years later. So it'll also be interesting to see where in the FBI files they begin identifying him as Akhmerov. Now, I do have a question. Um, I've always wondered uh, how much the defection of uh, Whitaker Chambers in 1938, uh, how much effect that had on the Ware Group's activities. Um, and uh, I wonder if, is there anything about that in, in the book? We do know that Colonel Bikoff was recalled to Moscow soon thereafter, and I think he met a a violent end uh, soon after that. But other than that, I don't know what happened between the time that Chambers defected and the Silvermaster group got going in uh, 1941. We do talk about it in the book, but let me tell you, because it is 
a, a complex story, and I'll try to make it a little simpler. The Whitaker Chambers spy ring with Alger Hiss and, and Harry Dexter White and so on were reporting to the Soviet military intelligence, later called the GRU, then called the Fourth Bureau of the Red Army. After the defection of Chambers, that agency lost its responsibilities, at least in the United States and in some other countries, and the NKVD took over the agents. But something else was happening. The purges were going on, and hundreds and hundreds of NKVD officers were brought back to Moscow to be shot. And so there was a severe uh, loss of personnel to handle the agents. And so a lot of the agent networks were put on ice, as they said, and were not activated until later. And you can see them being reactivated in the Venona traffic. Uh, the, the Silver Master Group, the Perlow Group, are reactivated after having been sort of shoved off on the side for a while. But there is an incredible story told by one of the retired uh, KGB officers, uh, Vitaly Pavlov. He was only 25 years old at that time, in 1939, and he was brought into NKVD headquarters to, to run the American section. And he was called into a meeting where all of high-ranking officers were sitting, and Lavrenti Beria, who took over Stalin's purge machine after the death of Yezhov, Beria looked around the room and said, you're a German spy, you're a French spy, you're an American spy. And people were taken away. People died uh, on the basis of this incredible stupidity. But Akhmerov was sitting in the room and uh, uh, Zarubin, both of whom had worked in the United States, and Beria accused them of being American spies. But they were not taken out. They were simply demoted to the lowest possible rank, and they were put to work under this 25-year-old kid who had just been assigned to run the section. And time went on, not very long, a couple of years went on, and the decision was made in Moscow not to shoot them, but to send them back to the United States. And Zarubin was in the Soviet embassy, and, and first the consulate in New York, then the embassy in Washington, and Akhmerov came back as the illegal director, and they worked for years in the United States, finally being called back after World War II. So, these people had incredible lives. And can you imagine living in a society where you give it your all, you, you do everything, risk your life for them, and they will come one afternoon and say, you, out, shoot them. An incredible society. Yes? Um, some people speculate that the Morgenthau plan, Nazi knowledge of it, may have had some effect in prolonging the war. Is it true that that plan was written by Harry Dexter White at the behest of the Soviets, mm -hmm. and that may have had an, an effect in, in prolonging the war and costing Allied lives? Yes, we tell that story in, in the book. Um, White met with a sort of a visiting fireman from Moscow who was sent in to talk to him. And in the course of the conversation, which is reported in Venona, White tells him that he and Henry Morgenthau Jr. are going over to Europe to meet with Eisenhower. When they are meeting with Eisenhower, uh, 
the general makes some offhanded comment about we shouldn't be too soft on the Germans. And Morgenthau says, that's right, we shouldn't. And Harry Dexter White said, let me prepare the paper on that. And he prepares this plan where Germany will be turned into a pasture, its factories stripped, and that Germany would be divided up. And the so-called Morgenthau plan, it was really the Harry Dexter White plan. When it came to Roosevelt and Churchill, their initial reaction was, it sounds like a good idea, but then they rejected it. After they rejected it, somebody in the Treasury Department, White being in the Treasury Department, leaked it to the newspapers as if it was a thing that the U.S. government had decided to do. It was a godsend for Goebbels' propaganda ministry because they began putting out all kinds of material. If the Americans get here, they're going to take away your factories, they're going to make you a farmer, they're going to destroy your life. And it was a very effective weapon. And while that weapon, which was put into the Nazis' hands by Harry Dexter White, was functioning, we have a leaflet that the Soviets dropped on the Germans. And the leaflet says, um, Hitler's come and go, but the German people and state remains. So in other words, while they were getting the image of a hard piece from the Americans, they were going to get a soft piece from the Soviets. Because the, when it actually happened, the, the exact opposite took place. But Harry Dexter White was very important in that. And in the book, we also talk about his role in preparing the memorandum that was used uh, to demand, make demands of the Japanese in December of 1941 that gave the war party in Tokyo the opportunity to say, now is the time to attack at Pearl Harbor. So Harry Dexter White played a very important influential role in starting the war and keeping it going. Did you catch any sense of reporting back to the Soviets by Harry Dexter White or others on a contact by Admiral Canaris in 1943 with the U.S. Naval Intelligence proposing to overthrow Hitler and end the war in 1943, provided the Allies would only agree to keep Russia out of Germany, the Russians out of Germany. And none of the Soviet documents I've seen, either the intercepted communications in Venona or material in the archives, have I seen anything on that. But there's a constant concern of the Soviets that the Western Allies would make a deal where Hitler would be thrown out and the Nazis would be thrown out and the Soviet army would not have a chance to get into Germany. So, but I didn't see anything particularly on the Canaris context. Canaris did make such a proposal in 1943 to naval intelligence. Yeah, Max? Did you find anything in Venona from the Soviet agents to American agents concerning labor unrest in the United States? No. No, they didn't want labor unrest in the United States. The, the whole point was that everything had to be done to support the Soviet war effort. So the American communists, under instructions of the Communist International, signed a no-strike pledge and made sure that there would not be any labor unrest in the United States. The, you know, the Communist Party always had this false image of being concerned about labor or concerned about blacks or concerned about Jews. The reality was they were not concerned about anything but Russia. And so if workers felt that they needed to go on strike, the communists sabotaged those strikes because Russia needed the war materials that were being produced. And in one incident where uh, a, a Negro nurses in the army 
protested because uh, after an accident, some Negro GIs had not been taken to the hospital. The Communist Party publicly condemned them. They said, you shouldn't be raising these small problems of, of discrimination in America when the Soviet Union needs us all to be supporting it. So, yeah, they didn't pr promote labor unrest then. Yes, sir. The name Konstantin Umansky appears on notice of the index. He was a Soviet ambassador in Mexico City. Right. And he was killed in a plane crash taking off from the airport the Russian plane with all of his entourage of intelligence agents. That was an FBI agent who was flown out of the airport immediately after the crash by the air attaché of the American embassy. And the KGB suspected and tried to prove that the FBI agent was responsible for sabotaging the plane. Has that ever been no, I, I, you know, I'm familiar with the fact of Vumansky dying in the plane crash, and, and that, yeah, but I, I don't know the, the other aspect of it, but Vumansky, who had an intelligence assignment himself for many years, uh, worked very closely with the NKVD unit in Mexico City, and uh, there's one communication in which uh, the NKVD in New York needs a Leica camera for Julius Rosenberg. And they asked Moscow to ask Mexico City to buy one. And, and Moscow says, Umansky will pay for it <laughs> and ship it up. How frustrated were you by, and do you, is there any justification for the redaction of some Venola names in the texts by the British and American governments? and in particular, the long list of communists in OSS. There are three places, as this is Nigel West who asked that question, uh, where names were redacted. In two cases, the names are actually in the text of the NKVD message and were taken out. And one is the, the list he referred to of communists in the OSS. I, I have never heard a logical explanation for this. I don't think there's any reason uh, more than 50 years later that those names should, should remain concealed. But obviously, they don't want to release them. The other was the name of one of the scientists who worked with Julius Rosenberg. And I think we've identified him uh, in the book. But the third place, the British, as you may know, have a tendency not to want to identify these people. And they uh, took out uh, from some of the Venona messages, uh, well, the identification that British intelligence had made of uh, two very important Soviet spies who ran a spy ring in, in Britain, uh, one of them uh, Montague and the other one J.B.S. Haldane, who were very important people in the British Communist Party. And their names were identified by Nigel West in his recent book. And uh, he exposed them as the people who were, had their names redacted by the British. So keep on doing that sort of thing. <laughs> and let's get these people identified whether they want them identified or not. Yes? Just, has anything turned up about Oswald? That, that, that would have been, of course, at a much earlier... Uh, the material we see is of a much earlier period than Oswald. Oh, but uh, so certainly we're, we're seeing some things 
about the, the use by the Soviet intelligence service of the Kennedy assassination to spread this information about the United States. And I think the more is going to be coming out about that later and some other people are working on it. So one more question. Well, let's just see, is there anybody who has not asked the question? And then if there isn't, Sue? Okay. Um, one of the early sort of influential paperbacks was uh, George Racy Jordan's uh, diaries, you know, about what was going through Great Falls, Montana. Does uh, any of what you had to say in here, I didn't notice any particular connection, although the name Harry Hopkins was conspicuous. Uh, does any, anyone, anything you want to discuss briefly? Okay, very briefly, yes, indeed, uh, it's in the book, and we talk about uh, Jordan, who was an American military officer involved in uh, shipping materials to the Soviet Union. And what he exposed particularly was a shipment of uranium when our atomic energy people did not want the Russians to even know that we were using uranium for any purpose. And uh, what happened was that Harry Hopkins overruled them and ship the uranium. So yes, that is in the book and, and other similar things. Thank you. Thank you, Herb. Thank you. I just say that one can scarcely find a more dedicated scholar who is also dedicated to the cause of liberty and the cause of truth in the midst of a wilderness of mirrors and cascades of falsehoods that come out in the highly politicized environment of this kind of study. And so I've been an admirer of Herb's for now a couple of decades. And uh, it's always a pleasure to see him publish yet something else. And he and, and the late Eric Brindell have, have come out with absolutely a splendid document. And I'd like to thank uh, Al Regnery, who is with us, uh, for supplying us uh, these books at a discount. I encourage you to get one, because it'll be more expensive later. And, uh, um, and I'd, uh, I'd like to invite you to all uh, join us for some refreshments. And thank you all for being here. was the head of the Office of Counter-Soviet Disinformation at the United States Information Agency from 1983 to 1989. His new book, The Venona Secrets, exposing